Oh, but, um, what we're going to look at tonight is, is important, what takes place on day number six. Day number six, God begins to fill up this earth that he has created. Now, reminding us all tonight, though, that God creates the earth not for the sake of the animals and even not necessarily for our own sake, but rather for his glory's sake, for his name's sake. He does so for his own divine purposes and, and, and decrees, but ultimately what we're going to see is that day six is the, the peak or the, the crown jewel, if you will, of creation. This crown jewel being man. That man is separated, uh, different from God, but as well as different from the animal kingdom and uh, is, is known by God and formed and fashioned by God. And we're going to see all the details of what this means for Adam and, and Eve as well, but ultimately for us, pointing to us and, and, and preparing uh, to study how we got to the place that we are. Now, I want to go ahead and let you know, too, is this, and this is not in your notes, but what happens as we read and study Genesis 1 and 2 is that there is some overlap that takes place, and unfortunately, a lot of people get confused in reading chapter 1 and chapter 2, because the end of chapter 1 gives us day number 6, which is what we're looking at which gives us sort of this broad scope of what takes place. Animals are created, and God says, let us make man in our image after our likeness and, and all that stuff, and be fruitful and multiply. But then we get into chapter 2, and we've got day 7, day of rest, and all that stuff. But then uh, verse number 4, down through the end, gets into the details of the garden, creation, plants, animals, Adam, how he was formed and fashioned, then um, the specific role that God gave to Adam, his purpose, what he was doing, uh, why he was doing it. Um, then we get into even in chapter two, the roles of male, female. We get into marriage, what that looks like. We get into what the home is supposed to look like, the foundations of faith, the foundations of trust, the foundations of relationship between God and man. And so it's chock full of stuff. There's a lot more detail that comes with chapter two. What we can do is kind of look at chapter 2, especially the beginning, dealing with that as sort of the filling in or the, the, the stuffing of the Oreo to what happens in day 6 here. Okay, Day 6 is verse 24 down to, to 31, and we're going to see that, day, uh, that chapter 2 kind of fills all of that in for us. So don't get caught up in going, how come this says this and this says that? Let, let's, we got to look at the whole big picture, and we're going to address that as we go. So... Looking at day six in chapter one, we're going to go a little bit broader, all right? Then over the next few weeks as we get in chapter two, we're going to get more specific with some of those issues and details, all right? So hopefully, if you do have questions, write them down, throw them in that bucket. I'd love to answer them. And then I know that there's several questions that we're going to be answering that some have asked me over these next few weeks. So if you asked it, be here, all right? <laughs> Pay attention. You'll get it. If not, you'll miss it. Verse number 24. It starts off as everything else has this point, and we've emphasized it every time, and we're going to emphasize it again. And God said, Let the earth bring forth the living creature after his kind, cattle and creeping thing and beasts of the earth after his kind, and it was so. I love that every single time in Genesis chapter 1 in the creation account that we find, and God said, and at the end of that verse it always says, and it was so. It reminds us, and we go, how come... You emphasize it every time. How come it says it every time? Because it is truly that important. The, the person reading this the first time this is written down, from Moses writing this and reading it and discussing it and being passed on to generation to generation, being preserved, every time that they write it, copy it, read it out loud, study it, memorize it, 
what they are getting and understanding is that this world did not come by chance, nor did this world come by the sun or the moon or the stars or, or by any other work or created being, but rather it came from the one mighty God, Elohim, the creator, the triune God, who spoke and it was so. This is going to stick into the mind of the Israelite, especially as they're going into a land uh, of the Canaan land where they're going to be surrounded by enemies, surrounded by pagans, and they're trying to enter into the promised land. What is going to be at the forefront of their minds is that there is one God and one God alone. As a matter of fact, you can go read in Deuteronomy where they have this sort of um, mission statement or um, this sort of idea of going, the Lord is one. Right? And that, that's the whole emphasis for Israel. And, and Genesis 1, without a doubt, shows that. So that's why we see the importance of, and God said, and it was so. God now begins to populate the earth, which he has created with living creatures to bring abundant life to the earth and ultimately to provide his divine plan of creating man. What we're going to find here is in verse 24, he says, let the earth bring forth the living creature after his kind, which we find the importance of that, and we'll address that too again. Cattle and creeping thing and beasts of the earth after his kind, and it was so. Now, what he's ultimately doing is he's saying, every animal that's in existence at this point or has ever been in existence, boom, it's there. But that's just, he's just kind of, that's a, that's a fine point. The greater point that he's going to spend time on is going to be the creative order of man, his role, his responsibility, because man is going to be set apart. But we want to look and address what this means. We see that there's three things that he gives. The uh, creature after his kind, the cattle, the creeping thing, and the beast of the earth after his kind. There is variety and diversity in the earth. We can see that even from the diversity of types of birds, types of insects. We often even wonder why did God make certain insects or certain this or that that we don't like, whether it be stink bugs, spiders, all these things. Whatever God makes... He makes because, one, he's God and only he can create it. Two, because he has a purpose for it. Now, what the purpose is of some of those things, you and I can't begin to fathom, but yet they're there. They're serving God's purpose because ultimately the creation is supposed to serve the purpose of the creator. What happens with the fall later on is that we're going to find that, the, uh, that mankind and, and creation itself begins to go contrary to what God had ordered, what God had ordained, what God had decreed to take place. David Guzik gives us a, a little bit of insight into this idea of everything being created here. He says, when we look at the infinite variety of the animal kingdom, both living and extinct, we must be impressed with, the God, with God's creative power, as well as his sense of humor. Any being who makes a giraffe, the platypus, and the peacock is a god of joy and humor. I included that tonight, not because it's some sort of deep theological treatise here, but rather because it really gives us this understanding of that God is a God of certainly of personality. God is a God of order. God is a God of all of these things. We find, though, that what God does here is that he shows that only God could do such. You and I could sit down with a pen and a pad and never in a million years come up with all the things that we find in creation today. None of us would sit down and go, you know, I think I'll make a spider and give it eight legs and make it fuzzy and make some others not fuzzy and make some that are blind and jump at you in your garage or your basement. We wouldn't think of those things, but God does. We wouldn't think about uh, the little things about how, a, how even a, a duck is made with webbed feet and the way that its feathers are and the density of the bones and everything else. I mean, you and I, to, to think about the complexity and the diversity of the animal kingdom, it clearly shows only God could do this. How in the world can a big bang, which there's nothing there to bang, first of all, so how that happens, 
right? But how that can bring forth the divine order that is around us and the diversity, it is absolutely impossible and ludicrous to think of such. There is no evolutionary progression to make these animals either. God said, and it was so. His divine plan, words, and hands are all that he needs to bring about the created world. If you and I were to create a house, what would we need? Building permits, and we need land, and we would need bricks and foundations, and we'd need Stephen to test the water for us, and all stuff. We, we would need loads of stuff, right? Wouldn't we? It's a long process. It's a long haul. But if we're going to build a house, we need a bunch of other material to do it, don't we? God used no other material to do it except his own power and might and plan. And we often forget this because what we're going to deal with tonight, and I'm just warning you here because I want you to know, I don't and cannot grasp all that we're going to address tonight. Right? We are dealing with the infinite. We are dealing with something that is absolutely eternal and, and someone who, from eternity, which we can't even grasp, planned all of these things with a specific purpose from the giant dinosaur or winged creature to the sea creature, to the tiniest of insect, let alone the crown jewel of creation being mankind. That God plans it and goes, I'll do it. There it is. And it was so. It's mind-boggling to think about these things. But I believe it's worthwhile for us to chew on. The more, I believe, our finite brains chew upon the infinite of God and His Word and His power and His might and His character, I believe the more we get to appreciate who He is. It's kind of like, for me, and it sounds silly, but it's like when you are enjoying that last bite of, of steak or, or, or cake or whatever it is, it, it's really good. You don't want to swallow it. You just want to keep chewing because, man, this is good and my plate's going to be empty, right? The good thing about God's Word and studying and knowing Him and thinking about Him and all of that He is, which is beyond eternal and infinite, we never get to the last bite. We never get to an empty plate. And, but it's worthwhile to chew on. Even if we can't fathom the goodness of it, we can certainly appreciate that this is God and this is what he's revealed to us. And now he goes on and we, we look at these three classes of animals here. Each one is going to be distinct. Each one is going to have its own function in the ecosystem. Right? We think about this. The way, even in a, in a local ecosystem like, like here, right? Um, acorns drop from tree. Deer eats acorns. We eat deer. Ecosystem, right? <laughs> but we think about this, though. Everything has its purpose and its place and its operation. Now, these classes I want to deal with here, because for you and I to try to understand all the animals fitting under the umbrella of cattle, creeping things, and beasts of the earth is a little tough for us. And let's just be honest with that. It is. First of all, he says, and let the earth bring forth the living creature after his kind, right? We've dealt with that, and we're going to deal with it later. The issue of kind being this is what it is, and it will not reproduce with something that is not that same kind. Now, there will be variations within that kind, like there's dog. There's different kinds of dogs. There's, as Darwin had the issue with, with on the Galapagos Islands, there were finches. But some had long beaks, some had short beaks, some had round beaks, some had pointy beaks, right? It was his issue of going, well, there, that, that must explain evolution. That doesn't explain evolution. What that shows is that there's variations. It shows the, the, the differences of one kind, but those kinds are still a kind. Now, the cattle is the first one. Cattle is pretty self-explanatory. It is every sort of domesticated animal 
normally described in the actual language in the Hebrew of something that is four-footed, that's a beast, a sort of large animal. It is domesticated animals that will be used for man's purposes of nutrition and one day as well for sacrifices. As a matter of fact, it will not be long in Genesis until we have our first one, until we have our first sacrifice. You can go and look into chapter 4, Cain and Abel. It, it immediately becomes a big deal because it's going to be these four-footed cattle, if you will, that are going to be herded by man. They're going to be used by man for food, clothes, shelter, um, tools, as well as for sacrifice to God as he uh, ordains and gives him instruction. And looking even more so that those of the household of faith, especially that of Israel, are going to be given the law, which they're going to be told exactly how to farm, how not to farm, what to farm, what not to farm, what to sacrifice, what not to sacrifice, what to eat and how to eat it, what not to eat and how not to eat, all those things. It is a very complex thing when we see here, but he creates these things for this grander purpose. These animals will serve a multitude of purposes for man throughout all of our history, and we even still find that today. The second thing that we see is the creeping things. These are the ones that most of us would go, why does God make the creeping things? Because creeping things does not sound nice or fluffy or those sorts of things. It sounds creepy. We go, what does this mean? Creeping things, as one commentator writes, dealing with the issue of the word, he says, it's which suggests to us uh, only reptiles in our English language is not a scientific classification, but a description of the smooth or crawling motions of various kinds of creatures. The Hebrew verb has already appeared in verse 21, moves, evidently to denote the gliding of fish as in Psalm 104, 25. So ultimately what we're getting here with the creepy things or the creeping things, those that creep, it is that every reptile to the tiniest worm, God knows all and creates all. And we think about how in the world or why in the world, but God does. If we were to take one of these important kinds of animals out of our ecosystems, it would affect everything, wouldn't it? We think it wasn't but so long ago that even in Virginia that to find deer was a difficult thing. You're looking at less, less than what, 70, 80 years. And I mean, if you found a good deer, it was, it was hard to come by. It, things have been overpopulated, overrun, and overkilled, overeaten, all these different things. You find if you take something out or you add something in, it, it changes the effects a lot. So God certainly makes all these things knowing much more than what you and I could. If you and I created the world, have we wanted it to be or took this animal out because we don't like it or added that animal more because we like it? Imagine how different our world would be. It would probably be in a lot of chaos. Things would probably be going extinct a lot more uh, quickly and, and a million other issues. Then we have third, the beast of the earth. Now, this is the idea of game animals or roaming wild herd-like animals. Now, these three kinds of animals, if you will, cover all the kinds throughout. And yes, that's going to include dinosaurs as well. I include here for you uh, one commentator, last name Foley. It says AIG there in parentheses. That, that is answers in Genesis. Now, this quote comes to you literally off the website that is meant for answers in Genesis kids. And I don't give that to you because it's demeaning. I give it to you because I believe that they put it the simplest about what day six looks like. Now, he says, on day six, God commanded the earth to bring forth living creatures. Genesis 1.24. All the animals that live or lived on the land, such as elephants, horses, and dinosaurs, were created on this day. Genesis 1.24-25. And each kind was unique and different, from tiny mice to the huge T-Rex to howling monkeys. 
Each one was created to reproduce according to its kind. Genesis 1.25. So one kind will never turn into another kind. Dogs always have baby dogs. Cats always have baby cats. And horses always have baby horses. If we can understand those very basic terms, those very basic things, we can understand creation. And we can certainly defend ourselves when the atheist comes and says, well, how do you, how do you explain the difference of the finches or the differences in dogs? It's clear. It's evident. It is much more simple than what folks want to make it. We overcomplicate creation. We overcomplicate a lot of things. What God says and God does, we should be able to trust it as that. And the reason why, I think even more so, that I give us what was meant for a child to understand is because we still have what? A childlike faith, don't we? We even say sometimes, and we even hear it in Scripture, out of the mouth of babes. You and I sometimes, unfortunately, lose, after walking with the Lord for a long time, our adolescent faith of innocence, just trusting God at His Word. God said it, so I believe it. The longer we live in in this world, we sometimes get to this place where we go, well, I I don't know, I'm not too sure. And we need to get back to just going, not not a dumb way of where we don't study. I'm not talking about that of blind faith either. I'm talking about a faith where we just go, God says it, I believe it. If God said it and God revealed it here in his word, then that's good enough for me. I might not understand all that that means or all that it holds, because I certainly don't tonight. But it means that we just go, God's God, I'm not. And I trust him for that. If we could not trust God simply like that, then we would be in a whole lot more uh, in a world of hurt than what we are today. I, give you two, uh, I want to give you two verses tonight. Well, a couple verses. Colossians 1, 16 and 17 tells us this. For by him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible. Whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things created by him and for him. He is before all things, and by him all things consist. Now, in context, this passage in Colossians chapter 1 is dealing with Jesus, second person of the Trinity of the Godhead. But what we find is this. Everything is created uh, in heaven and in earth. That covers a lot of ground, don't it? How about this? Visible and invisible. It covers everything. That means there is nothing that has ever been in existence that has not first come forth from the decree and plan of Almighty God Himself. Nothing, nothing can produce nothing. It has to come from God. He is the source of all things and the purpose of all things. He even says here, and He is before all things, and by Him all things consist, but all things were created by Him and for Him. For Him, for His purpose. Then I want to give it to you Revelation 4.11. Revelation 4.11 tells us, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for Thou hast created all things, and for Thy pleasure they were, or they are and were created. Everything is by Him, through Him, to Him, for Him. Notice the emphasis here. It is all about the Lord. So the simple terms, if we were to be asked, why does God do this? Why does God create? Because He wants to. I know it sounds simplistic. It sounds, well, it's got to be more. Because let's be honest, in our human nature, we want a better answer than that. But the answer that these two passages in Colossians and Revelation both give us is His purpose. For Him. He didn't do it either, by the way, but for Him does not mean He did it because He was lonely. As we're about to see that as God creates man, He says, let us make man in our image, 
God is in perfect harmony amongst Himself. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit from eternity to eternity. He's not out there going, sure wish I had somebody to talk to. No. We don't serve a God who is lonely. We serve a God who decides, I'm going to create because, let me ask you this, have you ever seen the face of an invisible God who is spirit without body? Me either. So what does God do? God says, I'm going to show forth my glory and my purposes by creating. We look at the world around us and what does it do? From the stars to the seas, it describes and declares that there is a glorious God who made all these things. How about our conscience? How about the scripture as we read it, we hear it preached and we study it? How about knowing the Savior that has changed our hearts and lives? What does it do? It points us to the greater purpose and that is the glory of God. It is that God is the source of all these things and that He is ultimately the purpose of all these things. Now, we find in the same uh, passage here, <coughs> excuse me, and God made the beast of the earth after his kind. And we found that already two times in verse 24. And cattle after their kind, and everything that creepeth upon the earth after his kind. And God saw that it was good. After his kind, and it was good. After his kind is so important. We've dealt with that, but we have one commentary that deals with this. He says, after its kind, this refers to all three classes of living creatures, each of which had its peculiar species. Consequently, in verse 25, where the word of God is fulfilled, it is repeated with every class. The act of creation, too, like all that preceded, is shown by the divine word good to be in accordance with the will of God. But the blessing pronounced is omitted. The author hastening to the account of the creation of man in which the work of creation culminated. So he does not stop and bless the animals yet. He's waiting until after man is created, and then he's going to bless all of these living creatures. But specifically, he's going to give a special blessing, as we'll see later on in chapter 2, to mankind. But what we find in this is that God pronounces it good. We've dealt with this word good. Good means, as this commentator deals with, to be in accordance with the will of God. So how do you know if something is in the will of God? Because it's good. How do we know if it's good? Because it's in accordance with the will of God or the word of God. It goes in, in alignment with who God is and what God stands for, what God decrees and tells us and reveals us. So, even more so, what we found is that word has a, has a meaning that points to a greater purpose that it is going to be good for man. Because what does God do according to his word? That everything is by him, but for our good and his glory. That's who God is. That's what God does for his people and his creation. Specifically, mankind. Now, we get here in the, the waters and the land, the plants, the luminaries, the animals, and all of creation is for man's use to demonstrate God's glory and to operate the theocratic kingdom of God. Now we get to verse 26, the creative act number two of day six, and that is the peak point, the crown jewel that man is made. Now, you might be confused because how many times behind this pulpit and even how many times do you and I talk about how bad mankind is? So how in the world are we talking about mankind being the jewel of creation. It's because we're talking about man being created while there is no sin. Because there is no sin, there is no death, there is no separation, there is no wrongdoing, there is nothing that is going contrary to the will or word of God. So that's why man is certainly here at this peak point, but as well as we're going to see, because man is going to be the only living creature on the earth that is going to be made in the image of God. And let's look here. At verse number 26, once more we find... And God said, 
This goes, of course, and obliterates the argument that man came from some sort of primordial ooze that slowly evolved over time and became some sort of monkeys, and then we eventually developed uh, thumbs, and we got less hairy, and we started standing upright, and all those things. It is absolutely mind-boggling. And what God is about to do in verse 26 on to the rest of this chapter is to show the opposite of what is taught in our schools today. I want you to know, and I don't say this lightly or jokingly or, 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 or to, to even be rudely, but what is taught in our schools today is not theoretical. It is, it is a religion that's being taught, and I want you to know that. It is very much a spiritual religion that is being taught to our children that they are just animals. If you believe that you are just an animal, then that will mean that you're going to start acting like one, aren't you? It, it's, it's this idea that, well, if I am just an animal, then I have no one to hold me accountable. I have nothing to hold me back. I have nothing to restrain me. And certainly, if this is all the life that I have, then I should live it up as I want. And it doesn't matter who I hurt, what I say, what I do, as long as it pleases me and it puts food in my belly or takes care of myself, nothing else matters. But man is not created as a higher evolved form of animal nor as a different class of animal because we're not an animal. We are made in the image after the likeness of God. Let's deal with this. He says, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Stop right there. Let us make man. This is an important phrase to understand. Uh, One commentator deals with this and he says, the last stage in the process of creation being now reached, God said, let us make man. Words which show the peculiar importance of the works to be done the formation of a creature who was to be God's representative, clothed with authority, and rule as visible head and monarch of the world. It is going to be man who is given dominion over not just dogs and cats, but over all creatures that are living on the land, the sea, the birds, the the vegetation even. It's going to be for man's good purpose and good use. Now, in this, we find as well that God is going to make man in such a peculiar way that we don't find dogs, cats, dinosaurs, or anything else that is much larger than man being in charge of the earth, nor being the representative of man. Why? Because man is his own thing. Man is made, as we're going to see, in the image of God. And this created work of who man is, it shows this higher purpose, uh, this higher creation that if we are something different man has a greater purpose than even the animals animals have their purpose and it's sad when animals die especially unjustly or a family pet i mean it's sad there's no denying that but what is more sad all right and this is where i I got into these uh, sort of things just to kind of pop quiz with with our youth years ago and go all right what is more sad or what is worse, even? Let's take it there. A, uh, an abused dog that's killed. Sad. How about this? On the other side, which one's worse? The abused dog that's killed, and that's very unjust, isn't it? We would all agree to that. It's unjust. It's not right. It's not biblical. It's unfair. It's terrible. It's sinful. Or an abused six-year-old child that is killed by mom or dad. Which one is worse? child why because human right because he's human 
because they're a human being. Now, we would certainly say that is unjust and that is suffering and that is sinful. And we would say the same thing about that. But the difference lies in that that is a human being. No one had to teach you that, did they? You naturally know that this is not right. That it is not good. That this human being is different than that animal or tree. That's why even as a little kid, you and I, we might use a magnifying glass on an, on an ant, but we're not going to go around and see, well, I, I'm five years old, and I think I'm the toughest thing around, and I think I should just kill somebody today. We don't think that. Why? Because we know there's a difference. We don't really have the remorse over an ant, but we would certainly have a remorse over a human because we see that there is a difference. Not just in a difference in the physical aspect, but it's the spiritual that we're going to look at tonight. That this being is eternal. An eternal being in what we now have a temporary body. We have uh, another one that writes here, the creation of man does not take place through a word addressed by God to the earth, but as a result of the divine decree, we will make man in our image and after our likeness, which proclaims at the very outset the distinction and preeminence of man above all other creatures of the earth. The plural, we, was regarded by the fathers and early theologians almost unanimously as indicative of the Trinity. Modern commentators, on the contrary, regard it either as a pluralis majestatis, which is uh, plural of majesty, or as an address by God to himself, the subject and object being identical, or as communicative, an address to the spirits or angels who stand around the deity uh, and constitute his counsel. So what does this mean if there's such a varied instance here? What does it mean when we find God said, let us, us is plural, isn't it? All right, how about this? Make man in our, our, plural, and after our likeness. The plural here is certainly, as the early church father said, it shows us, first of all, the Trinity. The word for God used in the beginning, God, Elohim, and we find that it is the same thing that was just mentioned in this quote, the plural of majesty, which is showing that this is a three in one, that this is, uh, this is the, the thrice holy God that is mentioned who created the heaven and the earth. This is the same one, that there is God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit who are co-equal, co-eternal, but also distinct, that the one is not the other, but yet the three in one. Now, that is the way we understand the Trinity. And if we can grasp and wrap our brains around it, it's certainly a struggle, I'll be honest, because it is an infinite thing. But yet, the very root core of Christianity, it is the very root core. Because if we don't have and serve the same triune God, oh, Genesis 1-1, we can't serve Christ the Son without understanding God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. The, the three are one. We have to be still Trinitarian. And unfortunately, the Trinity is the biggest doctrine, but the most forgotten doctrine or most neglected doctrine. Now, I'm not calling us all to be experts in here, but I'm calling us all to understand who God is, the very core and being. But then we come to the issue as well. What does it mean here? I believe that this verse is showing us two things. This shows us the divine, co-eternal, co-equal, yet distinct three persons of the Trinity having this self-communion that the commentator above described. To understand that the eternal God doesn't need our uh, fellowship in order to not be lonely. Rather, he is perfectly content and fine by himself. The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit in 
perfect harmony and communion. Not one aspect of the Trinity is off doing its own thing and without the counts of the other uh, two pieces, if you will, but rather the whole works all together. What God does, it is an act of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit at one time. We've talked about this in creation up to this point, especially in the first few verses of Genesis. God the Father, if you will, plans, decrees, God the Spirit is hovering and preparing. God the Son is the, as according to Colossians chapter 1, the one who's by His hands makes and sustains all things. How about even more so, past creation? How about your salvation? The same thing. It is God the Father who plans and decrees. God the Son who purchased your salvation upon Calvary and by raising from the dead. And the Holy Spirit who seals you and fills you to the day of redemption and dwells you in your life. How about in your uh, sanctification? It is the same as well, and, and on and on. Even we find with the resurrection of Christ himself, we find verses that say the Father raised him, and Jesus said, I lay down my life, and only I take it up. And we also find it as the Spirit that gives him the, the sort of regeneration. We find that it is everything that takes place in this universe is an act of this triune God. That there is nothing done outside of the determining decrees of this divine triune God throughout all of eternity. It's deep and it's heavy and it's weighty, but it's necessary to understand all of who God is. Now we get to what we will begin tonight, but certainly will not finish, and that is the Imago Dei in the image of God. Let us make man in our image after our likeness. And he's going to say, and let them have dominion, and go on and on. I want to look at what it means in the image of God. The Latin would be the Imago Dei, as you might hear it from time to time, the, the image of God. No man has, as Jesus said, no man has seen God. I've never seen God. We were told in the Scripture that God is spirit. But yet we know that Jesus Christ, the Son, came in the flesh. The Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld Him. And we, people literally saw Jesus. As we talked about in 1 John on Sunday school, and there were those who believed that Jesus was just an apparition, but no, he literally took on flesh, literally walked. He was literally there in the cradle, in the manger, right? He was literally there growing up physically, year after year, getting bigger and stronger and more mature. We find that it's that same Jesus who was fully by. How about the Holy Spirit of God who comes and dwells us? Spirit. We understand this, though, a couple of things to deal with first. First of all, Imago Dei, or image of God, means... First of all, that man is not God. We are made in the image of God, but we ourselves are not God. Now, this is an important distinction because there is a very popular group who will knock on your door, and I'll tell you what they're wearing. They're going to be wearing slacks, a tucked-in white shirt, and a tie, and they're going to have a little badge that says Elder So-and-So. All right? And normally they're going to be between the ages of 18 and 27. All right? He said, that's, really that's what they do, okay? Um, that, that's how I'm going to show up Halloween night at your front door and trick you. <laughs> but we, they come, and you know what they believe? They believe a lot. A whole lot of off wackadoodle stuff, but there is one big wackadoodle stuff they believe here that's very important. They believe that they themselves are little gods, little goddesses. That one day when they leave this earth, that if they are good enough and they did their missionary work and they wore their holy underwear and all that stuff, it gets deep, okay? They did all these X, Y, and Z things that they themselves will inherit their own planet 
and get to populate it and be the god of that planet. That, in case you were wondering, that's Mormonism. That's crazy. But you know what happens beyond them that the same folks that do it today are those, there are many who claim to be Bible-believing evangelicals or Christians today who have this sort of little God theology. All right? There's um, many who are very popular. There's one you might have heard of. He's fairly young. He's got the you know, whole look and everything. Um, he, he does it. And many others who write books that are popular today with especially young people. It, it gives a sort of little God theology that we ourselves have the spark of God in us. That we ourselves are um, little gods ourselves. And that we can uh, bind things uh, spiritually. And we can decree things and create things and, and name and claim things because we ourselves are little gods. That's false. It, it's nowhere found in Scripture, first of all, which as we talked about, it's, that's our authority. But as well as none of us are walking around with halos on our heads. None of us have an aura about us. right? We're just man. It means that we are not God. Man reflects the Lord and therefore is not the Lord. As we've talked about earlier in the creation, the moon is not the sun, but the light that comes from the moon is not the moon's, but the sun's. The moon reflects the sun. So, in the same with man, man is made in the image of God, but is not God. So what we see as man is a reflection, right? This is why later on we see God being a spirit and may not having a body. We find these anthropomorphic, and I know it's a $3 word, but anthropomorphic is the idea of we attribute to God who is spirit, human-like um, descriptions so that we can better understand him. And God gives that to us in his word for us to understand him. When he says his hand is upon his people, or his eyes go to and fro, or he smells the sweet-smelling savor of sacrifice, or his feet are, his footstool is the, uh, the, the planet, or the, the earth is his footstool, and those things. We see those descriptions to help us better understand who God is and what God might be like. We find that we are just creatures, and consequently we are dependent, we are finite, derived of him. Moreover, we are accountable to God, and he is not accountable to us. You want proof? Go read Job. Job is more than just a guy who suffers. Job is a treatise to show us that God is God that we are not. Go read chapters 38 to 42 because there you're going to find God saying, all right, Job, you've gotten your advice from all your buddies. Now I'm going to, I'm going to give it to you. I'm going to tell you what you need to hear. And he's going to tell Job, Job, did anyone, did I ask you how to make the earth when I made it? Did I ask you how high to make the mountains? how to stretch out the seas, the oceans. Who, who have I even asked? I, I did it all myself. I, I did it by my own purpose, by my own decree, by my own action, because I'm God. Anyone or anything that is not God is just a creature, finite. Secondly, the image of God distinguishes us, or man, from the animals. Just because we are not God does not, does not mean that we are just animals either. There are the two extremes. There are many who even claim Christianity, but like both of those groups I just described, who would say that they have the little God part in them. And they're not. But then we also have others who say that they are Christian as well, that they believe the Bible, but that we're just animals, just a better form 
False. We are subordinate to the Lord, not to the beasts of the field and to the birds of the air. Instead, man, according to Genesis 128, has dominion over the creatures God has made. And if you want to find out what the image of God really is, you'll have to come back next week. <laughs> I will give you this. In short, Charles Ryrie puts it plain, and, and I'll deal with it next week. The image of God in which man was created included the totality of his being as living, intelligent, determining, and moral. You and I are very much spiritual beings in physical bodies. And to understand the depth and the gravity of this, we understand this truth tonight. That we are made in the image of God tonight as far as that goes is this, that we're not God and we're not animals. Instead, we are something that God himself would put on flesh like us and would be in like manner tempted as we are so that he would die for us so that we who are just mortal, finite flesh who cannot understand him, let alone get to him by any finite, temporary, uh, physical work or deed, can go with him and know him and dwell with him forever. We're going to find that that separation doesn't start the day one of creation of Adam walking in the garden, but rather it comes after the fall. And what we find, though, is that God's eternal purposes are going to be fulfilled and that God is going to use these things, our mind, our body, our soul, our body, mind, spirit, all these things, our head, our heart, our hand, all those stuff. He's going to use it for his divine purpose and plans and that everything that you and I do as well, just like the stars and the creatures of the land, and the sea, and the sky, all have a purpose, and the purpose is for the glory of God. Let's keep that in mind. Tonight, let's, let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this night. Grateful that we can study your word, and Lord, there's so much depth here. So God, I pray that you would help us to not get caught in the, the muck of trying to understand everything, but Lord, that we would be caught in understanding and trusting you that you've given us these things to, to know more about you and to know who we are and where we stand and how we stand before you. So God, I pray that you would help us to do so tonight. And Lord, as we go from this place, I pray that you would help us to have on our hearts a burden for all those who are being taught and have been taught that they're just animals, uh, that they have no real purpose in this life. And Lord, help us also to, to care for those too who think far too highly of themselves. God, that you would humble those, that you would humble them, Lord, that they might understand that we are certainly made in your image, but Lord, we are just creatures who are weak beggars at the feet of the King. Lord, we need you. Lord, we are not deserving of you, but we pray for your grace and for your mercy, and Lord, that we might be able to have the joy by faith in Christ, being able to one day dine with you at your table. And Lord, may us look forward to that day and look forward to that eternal fellowship that we will have with you. Pray that you would go with us now as we go from this place. In Christ's name, amen. Thank you all for being with us.